We love eating together, as we're going to do next Sunday. We love feeding on scripture together as well. And today we're getting into a brand new preaching series on the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And we're going to be taking 15 weeks to go through uh, this book. And uh, if you're uh, unfamiliar with books, if you haven't read them, then uh, Luke and George have produced this really helpful overview in the, in the shape of a beautiful bookmark. So you can just slot it right into your Bible that you all have with you today, right? Uh, yeah. And if you, and if you, if you use a, a Bible on a, a device, then you could maybe give that as a gift to somebody. It's just so good looking, isn't it? It's lovely. Well done, guys. So that gives you some of the background and context to the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, if you're wondering at any point, actually, why, why does Paul talk about that? So here we are. And today I want to talk to you about having a healthy view of God. And I'm going to read a couple of scriptures. We're not going to preach verse by verse through Timothy. We're going to look at some themes that come through to make sure that we cover everything and we don't over-repeat certain things. So uh, we're looking, first of all, at 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 which says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Particularly focusing on this verse, now to the king eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then just turn over to chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. Let's just pray together. Lord, we just want to ask you to open our eyes to see scripture. We love this book. We love this precious word that you've given to us. And we pray that you'd help us to see you more in every detail, in every word, in every page. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about having a healthy view of God if you were to, to, to summarize the, the book of 1 Timothy or any book of the Bible, you'd summarize it this way. It's primarily about God, it's about Jesus, and it's about us and our relationship with him. And today this relates to you and I. And we're talking about having a healthy view of God. And the first thing I want us to note is that the church where Timothy is leading, Paul is writing a letter to a younger leader called Timothy, who is leading a church that Paul had started. And he's saying... Timothy, I want you to, to teach them about some of these things. This church started with a remarkably unclear view of who God was. And if you uh, have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to it. In Acts chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, you find the Apostle Paul goes to a place called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and it says that he found some disciples there in verse 1. And Paul started to talk to them because they were saying, hey, we're faith people. Hey, Paul, we're on the same page as you. So he says, great. He says, well, he says, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And just an alarm bell begins to go off for Paul because the, the Christian faith isn't very complex. You know, we, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It's a fairly um, 
I'm going to say it's a fairly simple idea. It's, it's, it, it's a complex idea, but it's, it's a well-known one. Every Christian would understand that point. And, uh, but these, these disciples, they say, well, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's thinking, all oh, right, well, what kind of Christians are you? We seem to be missing a member of the Trinity here. So Paul's kind of thinking to himself, I think, well, what baptism did you receive? Because Jesus said when you go baptizing people, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So he says, what, what baptism did you receive? And they said, ah, we received John's baptism. And Paul is like, oh, well, hang on, John predated Jesus. I mean, do you even know who Jesus is? And they don't even seem to know who Jesus is. So he explains to them about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. He explains to them about the Holy Spirit. And they get baptized. They respond to him. They get baptized. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Paul lays his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what was unclear for them became clear. Now, it's a really important thing. You see, when churches get started, when the gospel starts breaking out in new communities as we want it to in Scotland, in fact, any time you walk around Edinburgh and you see a church on the corner, and there's hundreds of them in Edinburgh because it's one of those places, it's there because somebody at some point thought, Edinburgh needs another expression of the grace of God. And it's exciting for us that 15 years ago this week, this church started. And Matthew and Anne and a dozen other people, they moved here. And uh, some of them are still here. There's Joni and and, uh, Rob and Mariska and Angelo. And uh, this is awkward, isn't it? Because I've forgotten half the people. Phil and Karen and, and, and others. Sorry if I missed you said, hey, we're here to start a brand new church, a new expression, because Edinburgh is a massive place that needs the gospel of Jesus. But the very nature of church planting and sharing the gospel is that you bring people in from all sorts of places, and not everybody's on the same page. Not everybody believes the same things. And it can be true equally at this stage of church life. We're a couple of hundred of us here this morning. And Here's, I've had this conversation enough times to know that this is true, that there'll be people here feeling today, as you've looked around in the worship, you thought, gosh, I don't really fit in here. I don't seem to worship the same as everybody else. Everybody else seems to be really into it and lifting their hands up and clapping and singing. And everybody else seems to know where they are in the Bible. And you can feel a bit left out. But I want to assure you this morning, if you look around closely in the worship, like I do sometimes... You'll, you'll see, actually, that there's people here who've been Christians maybe just a couple of weeks. There's people who have been Christians here for decades, for 50 years or more. Admittedly, we don't have many in that category. There'll be people here who've been Christians and wandered away from God and are now beginning to come back to God today. There'll be people here who don't know Jesus at all and you're wondering if Christianity is for you and you'll be here today. And... I just want to say it's wonderful to have all of those groups of people here. And Paul knew what it was to be an outsider. Paul knew what it was to be somebody who had an incorrect view of God, which got corrected. In fact, we read in those first verses we read today, verse 16, For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
And here was the wonderful gospel that Paul received. It wasn't the modern notion of our culture's gospel. Our culture's good news is this. Oh, you know, the, the, the answer to your problem is your salvation is to accept yourself. Paul's salvation, he said, he said, no. He said, the person I used to be, I utterly despise. The person I used to be, he said, the trajectory I was on in my life wasn't a good trajectory. He said, but God saved me. He said, he said it, and Paul had a lot of things credited to him. In fact, by his own admission, in, in Philippians chapter 3, you read, he said, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was probably the most eminently educated person of his day. He was very, very knowledgeable. He said, as for righteousness based on the law, he, he said, I was faultless. It would have been great to be married to him, wouldn't it? Wow. <laughs> um, and... And he said, he said, as for right, I persecuted the church. He was a person who went around deliberately closing down ideas that he disagreed with so that his ideas, what he thought was God's ideas, would prevail. He was an arrogant man. He viewed himself as being utterly acceptable to God. Now he looks at his life and says, gosh, I'm glad God forgave that old sinner. You know, the gospel for you isn't to accept yourself. The gospel is so much better than for you to just look at your life and say, well, this is who I am. I'm just going to accept who I am. The gospel for you is to move on from that old narrative and to accept the new narrative that God gives to you. The new narrative that calls you a child of God. The new narrative that says that you're headed for an eternal destiny with Jesus. The narrative that says your life can be utterly transformed, your relationships be, can be transformed. And Paul was utterly transformed. In fact, the Christians didn't even believe it when he became a Christian. Because he started trying to sneak in on their meetings and say, hey, I've become a Christian now. And it, it would have been the equivalent to Mao Tung trying to sneak into a house church meeting in China. Saying, hey guys, I've become a Christian. Do you, want, do you want to let me worship with you? No thanks. Yet Paul was a transformed man. And the gospel transforms us in a wonderful and powerful way. One of the great saints of history, St. Augustine, had a, a, a pretty renowned past. Uh, before he became a Christian, he'd slept with many prostitutes and, and had a very colorful uh, interaction with many people. And after he became a Christian and his life was transformed, he was walking along the street and this old mistress of his saw him and she started calling to him. She said, Augustine. And he just kept walking. He ignored her. And so she called loud. She said, Augustine. <laughs> and he just kept ignoring her to the point where she ran across the road and, and she stood in front of him and she said, Augustine, it is I. And he kept walking. He didn't look at it. He says, yes, but it is no longer I. <laughs> he was a transformed man. And Paul knew what it was to be a transformed man. And it's out of this transformed life that Paul worships in verse 17. And verse 17 that we read today has got to be one of the headiest verses in the Bible. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It, people call this a doxology. The Greek word uh, doxa means glory. Logos means word. It's a glory sentence. It's a glory word. It's a glory song. And what Paul's doing is he thinks about what Jesus has done for him. He starts thinking, oh, I've just got to worship right now. 
He said, as I'm just penning these thoughts about Jesus and what he's done for me, I, I just need to just say, gosh, God is amazing. And that's what God does to you. And he does something completely unfair for us as preachers. He puts four massive ideas about God into one sentence. He indulges in the greatness of God. And he says these four things. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. In our brief time, here we are. He's the king, eternal. This is what he's saying about God. He's saying he's eternal. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. It might say in your Bible, the king of the ages. That's to say he's outlasted every other throne and ruler that there's ever been on planet Earth. Queen Elizabeth II, she's one of the, I don't know if she is the longest reigning monarch ever. I think that might be true. She's outlasted 13 British prime ministers. And she brings it, whether you're a monarchist or not, she brings it a huge degree of stability to our political system. And there was that moment, wasn't there, in social media at the end of the year, because there'd been so many celebrity deaths in 2016, and then it hit the media that the Queen missed her annual church service due to illness, and there was that cry going, please, not the Queen, not in 2016. <laughs> Unfortunately, she, she's alive. But I love that tweet on Christmas Day where somebody said, said on, a day when, uh, on, a, on a day when bishops talk about politics... And politicians talk about morals. I love that the Queen talks about Jesus in her Christmas speech. And she brings stability across the board. Now, I'm not talking about Queen Elizabeth. I'm talking about God, who's an even longer reigning monarch of all time and all history. He will outlast Donald Trump. He outlasted Mao Zedong. He'll outlast Kim Jong-un. He'll outlast Robert Mugabe. All of those are just blips on a horizon. Because God is always on his throne. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of all eras. He's the king immortal. That's to say, he does not die. He's imperishable. He's undying. He's enduring. He's the God from whom all life is sourced and all life comes from. Think of the moment in your life when you were most alive. It's probably not right now, is it? <laughs> that time when you felt most full of energy. God is a million times more than that. He's invisible. Paul lists that as one of the greatest attributes of God. It's funny, because when I think about God being invisible, I usually think of that as a negative thing. I was thinking about that as, a, as I was reading this. I thought, God, my prayer to God is usually, Lord, I wish I could see you more. I wish I could, could, could see you in this situation or see you just make an appearance right now. That would be great. But I was thinking, why, why does Paul say oh, the, the invisible God? I love that about God, that he's invisible. And it's this that, God is beyond our senses. He wants to draw attention to the fact that he's beyond what we can touch and taste and see and know. He is so much bigger than what we are. In fact, theologians, they, they make this distinction between God's attributes. They call them communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable things that we can know and experience and perceive about God because it's true in our experience. For example... God is love. 1 John chapter 4. We understand that. I mean, God is so much more love than we would ever be. But we get love because everybody in this room knows something about love, right? 
You know what it is to be loved or to offer love or give love or want to love? We understand that. That's a human emotion because we're made in the image of God and he made us to love. God is all-knowing. We understand the idea of knowledge, right? Many of you here would have a degree or know what it is to, to study hard, to bring benefit to society, to, 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 to change the world. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. And the idea that God is all-knowing, he's just a million times better than our knowledge. But then the, there's these other things, these incommunicable attributes of God, these things that we think, well, I don't even know what that looks like. God the invisible. God the only, he's unique. God the immortal, he does not die. God the eternal. And it raises the question, why, why does Paul talk about those things? And the answer is this, that when somebody's a bit like us, we want to be like them. When somebody's incredibly different to us, it makes us in awe of them. And it makes us worship them. So as Paul says these four things, they're designed to make us worship. They're, mind, they're designed to make us think, God, you are so much better than I would ever imagine. You're even much better than the most perfect human being I could imagine. Paul draws us to the dizzy heights of God's difference to us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. I used to think when I was a young Christian that maturity was to have God nailed down. And I used to be drawn to teachers who seemed to have an explanation for every verse of the Bible. And I'd be like, oh, gosh, they must be mature. The older I get as a Christian, the more I'm impressed by people who say, there's mystery in God. I don't fully understand him. I can't explain every verse away. But I worship him. And I love him. Even when I don't understand him. Maturity is to worship him when we don't totally get it. When we face trials and grief and loss and hurts and harm and we say, God, I worship you anyway. It's to worship this God who is so vastly superior to us. Because that makes us worship. I think John Piper put it this way. He said, he used this illustration. He said, would you go to watch a film and pay money to see it if the actors in the film were only as good as you? No. That'd be rubbish, wouldn't it? It'd be like watching a school nativity. <laughs> Would you go to pay money to watch footballers play a game if only their skill level was about the same as yours? No, that's like the Scottish Premiership, isn't it? No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Some teams. <laughs> no, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You, you, you pay to watch greatness. Would you go to a restaurant where the, the chief chef could only cook to your standard or less? Of course you wouldn't. We worship greatness. We love greatness. We're drawn to greatness. We're made to admire greatness. And you are made to admire and love and worship the God of the universe. When the best we have in life is humanism and to just see the attributes of what humans can do, which is truly amazing at times, 
The truth is this, humans are like this though. In fact, we have that phrase, well, we're only human, meaning like this, we're like this, aren't we? People have good attributes and bad attributes. Why do we like watching reality TV shows? Because we like to see people, semi-celebrities who think they're something, totally letting themselves down and becoming utterly like everybody else. But do you know, when you think about God, the immortal, the invisible, the eternal, the only God, it doesn't bring him down, but rather we get caught up in the amazing nature of who he is. It makes your spirit soar. David put it this way, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who heals all your diseases, who forgives your sins, who renews your youth. So it is like the eagles. You know, worship isn't about a personality type. It's about your heart soaring when you think about who God is and what he is to you. Now, if you were to take these four attributes in isolation... God the only, God the eternal, God the immortal, and God the invisible. You might have concern. You might be worried. Unless we could add another attribute to that, which is this. He is infinitely good. See, imagine if you gave a despotic ruler those powers. Imagine if you gave Robert Mugabe immortality uniqueness, eternity. If you said, there you go, you rule the world from now on. What an awful place that would be. Even if you had all those powers, what an awful place the world would be. Because people say, somebody said, wouldn't they, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, except in the case of God. And we come to these verses in chapter 2, where we see that far from his secure position of unthreatened power, he loves to give. That God comes down from his pedestal where he is rightly worshipped and he comes down to earth. So we read in chapter 2, verse 3, God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And this tells us some amazing things about God. Not only is he powerful and eternal and immortal and the only God, but he's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this God, rather than just sitting on his throne and watching a world go gone wrong, he says, I love this world so much then I'm going to come down and change it and sort out the mess. And this tells us some things about God. I wonder if you know these things today. First of all, he wants all people to be saved. Therefore, all people need salvation. He wants all people to be saved. That's the heart of God. If you don't think God wants all people to be saved, then you haven't got the heart of God as revealed in this scripture. He loves saving people. He loves saving people from themselves, from lost eternities. He's not a small-hearted God. Here's another thing we see about God in this verse, that 
he believes in truth, absolute truth. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That doesn't sit so comfortably in a world where people say, well, there's many truths. There's many, it's just what truth is for you. I was, uh, do you remember that thing in the news a few weeks ago, uh, uh, sort of Tesco gate up in Brunsfield here, where um, the Borough Muir kids were being forced to queue outside at lunchtime to get their sandwiches, allowed in maybe one or two at a time. The private school kids, Watsons, were being allowed to just waltz in and just get their sandwiches without queuing. Do you remember that? Yeah, you remember? Do you read the news, you people? Come on, this is like the most exciting story of 2016. Um, and I, was, I just saw a news clip of it, and it made me chuckle, this sort of relativistic culture we live in. Because they interviewed a kid from Borough and a kid from Watsons, and uh, they said to Borough kid, so what do you think of this situation? He said, well, it's just completely unfair for me, because uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm having to queue to get my sandwiches, and, and they're not. And they interviewed the Watsons kid. And uh, he said, well, do you think this situation's unfair? And he smiled. He says, yeah, it's unfair for him. <laughs> but that, that's this relativistic world we live in. We, we, we don't talk about absolute truth. We don't talk about things being fair anymore, as if fair is a, a standard. We say, well, it's fair for me. It's not fair for you. It might be fair for you, but it might not be fair for me. God is fair. God is just. All his ways are just and true. And there's a throne that one day we're going to stand before. And we're going to be judged according to his standard. Not anybody else's. Not what we thought was right. But what he thinks is right. And he says this, there's only one God. That must have been quite something for the Apostle Paul to say. Somebody brought up as a Jew. Resenting Jesus. Denying his divinity. And he doesn't now come to a world and say, well, I used to think it was just Yahweh. Now I think it's Yahweh and Jesus. We're now in a pluralistic world. He says, no, there's only one God. And there's one mediator between God. It's Jesus. And this is the message. It's Jesus. He's the only way to God. He, Jesus is called the mediator. What's a mediator do? They go between warring factions. Uh, we, we haven't had this in Scotland recently, but down in London, there's been tube strikes, there's unions, picketing, uh, all, all those sorts of things. And what do you have when there's an industrial dispute? You have somebody who arbitrates, somebody who goes between, somebody who mediates. And what does the mediator do? Well, they say, well, let's take some of your arguments, and let's take some of your arguments, and let's talk about some of those things, see if we can reach a compromise here. And here's the situation for us. We have God on this side, and we have us on this side. And the mediator would go and say, well, okay, let's take a look at God for a moment. So God, what are you saying? And he says, well, I'm completely loving, I'm completely kind, I'm completely generous, I've never done anything wrong. I've never ever shown anything but love for people. Yet they've fallen out of sync with me. And the, the, the mediator goes to these people and he says, well, human beings, so what have you done with your relationship with God? And they say, well, you know what, we've ignored him, we've lived for ourselves, we've deliberately sinned, we've walked away from him, we've rebelled, we've made God in our own image, and we've, we've not worshipped him as he should be done. And any 
decent mediator would look at that situation and say, well, you are completely in the wrong and you are completely in the right and there's no reconciliation can be had here. There's no common ground. But this mediator is different. See, human beings, they, they try many things to, to try and make God in their own image. They, they do many things to try and live that purpose for which they were created. People try and build bridges using good works or being kind to people or, or liking people's Facebook posts incessantly. <laughs> or perhaps some kind of religious structure to try and make themselves acceptable to God, to try and fill in the gap. But the truth is this gap is too big. And this is what the mediator does. The mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. Why does he call him a man? He calls him a man because God became a man. Because he had to. Because he had to identify with all of our weakness. He had to show that he could live a perfect life when we couldn't. And this mediator, he died on a cross. And he bridged the gap between heaven and earth so that you could know him. And in Jesus, this invisible God becomes visible. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. This eternal king becomes a vulnerable baby. This immortal God becomes a mortal man dying on a cross and announcing it is finished. And he gave himself as a ransom for you and me that you might see him that your mortality, your frailty, your life that will one day end, will one day go on forever with Jesus in all glory and goodness. That one day you will have eternal life and that this one God would open up his family so that many, many, many people would become his sons and daughters. And Paul affirms, he says, this has happened. Jesus Appeared. This has been witnessed to at the correct time. Jesus has come. The God, immortal, invisible, the only God has come. And he's calling you to worship him. There's no greater revelation of God to be found. And today I want to ask you, do you know him? I don't know if the band could just join me. We're going to sing a final song in a moment. Perhaps somebody could take this flip chart away from me as well. Jesus said, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God. And I want to ask you, first of all, if you're a Christian here today, it's a knowledge that you can never grow tired of and that you can never exhaust to go deeper with God. And if you're starting this year feeling a little bit bored with God, a little bit complacent, thinking, oh, I've sung these songs and I've heard these things said before, I want to encourage you to go deeper with him. A couple of books I found really helpful when I was having my sabbatical last year. And to be honest, approaching my sabbatical, I, my own evaluation of my spiritual life would be this. I, I was finding it a little bit mechanical and a bit dry. and I was, I was reading the Bible and just finding the next sermon. 
And I had 11 weeks where I just reconnected with God. We did some great family things. It was wonderful. But this by far was the best thing, to connect with God, to know God. I found these two books really helpful by Mike Reeves. They're really easy. I'm not a, a really clever reader, so uh, maybe you could put the slide up of these two books. Um, one is called The Good God by Mike Reeves. The other is called Christ Our Life by Mike Reeves. They're both very accessible, basic theology books that will excite you about Jesus if you want to go deeper with him. But let me finish by asking you this question. If you are coming back to God or you're new to church or you're, you don't know Jesus, this is eternal life. It's to know God. And this God, who is unknowable by any other means, is now knowable through the person of Jesus. And today you can invite him to come into your life. And you can ask him to forgive your sins. And you can have a relationship with him.